Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... It will spread to every production line in every country. A dive into the new possibilities brought about by 3D printing. You have a little bowl of polymer and out comes a solid object quite quickly and quite beautifully, like Excalibur emerging from the enchanted lake in Arthurian legend. Also on the show, we'll explore a new frontier of fake news as machine learning technologies allow for the creation of inauthentic audio and video. While it's pretty hard to doctor images, the fact that it's about to get easier is perhaps going to take us back to a time when there was no written down truth that everybody could agree on. There was no media that everybody could agree on. And as in Increasing numbers of roaming icebergs threaten everything from ships to oil platforms. We'll explore the methods being used to tame them. Right now they're building a barge that they're going to put sensors on and run it into icebergs. And the whole point of this is to test how strong is ice and how weak is steel. But first, 3D printing has been around for several years. But new advances mean that the technology is poised for a boom in industrial production. Here to tell us more is our innovation editor, Paul Markley. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. So there's been a lot of chatter for a while about 3D printing disrupting everything from consumer products to building construction. But is it finally happening? I would say it finally is. Now, like all new technologies, 3D printing has initially been overhyped. And it's been very good for some things, making prototypes, specialist bits for airplanes, things like that. Millions of false teeth, in fact. But a lot of people have said it's not really up for mass production. It can't really hack it with speed and economies of scales. But that's changing. We've got new forms of 3D printing emerging now, and that looks like moving this whole technology on quite significantly. And so where are some of the places that 3D printing is now going? Well, the interesting one is a technique called digital light synthesis. Now, this is effectively growing a part out of a bowl of liquid polymer, and it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I described it a bit like Excalibur emerging from the enchanted lake in Arthurian legend. That sounds very beautiful, but I'm still lost as to what it means. What it means is that you have a little bowl of polymer and out comes a solid object quite quickly and quite beautifully. How? Well, its inventor says you could describe it as a software-controlled chemical reaction. It's just like a saucer with liquid polymer in it and has a transparent bottom and ultraviolet light is projected through the bottom and the polymer starts to solidify. A tool comes in, it sticks to the top of this tool. The tool lifts it up a bit, fresh polymer flows in beneath. The second layer shape is projected by UV below, and it just peers out of a saucer of liquid. And who's using the technology? Well, Adidas, the German sportswear company, has used this to make the soles for trainers. And in fact, they will be using this technology in two new factories, one in America and one in Germany, to produce at each factory 500 thousand pairs of trainers a year 
and uh, those factories are highly automated using this novel form of 3D printing. Now, that to me sounds like mass production, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's absolutely incredible. Where else is it being used where it's not so much of a small consumer good, but maybe a little bit more of an industrial good? Well, that's using polymers or plastics, but there's also advances in printing metal. Now, metal printers could cost a million dollars or more. Quite hard. They use lasers. They use electron beams to melt powdered metal together to form objects. Well, the new machines, we're talking about some now coming in around $40,000. They will allow more metal goods to be made faster and more accurately. So you could print a car part instead of having it in the warehouse. And of course, one possibility is instead of having warehouses packed with uh, spare parts, you could have warehouses in the cloud and just download the software to where it's needed and print out those parts in plastic or metal as you need them to repair things. And the structural integrity of the metal and other hard substances is good enough? The whole technology is getting better and better, and you can only assume that it will get better still, and in some cases rival the economies and scale and costs of mass production systems. Now, one thing that's interesting, the way that you describe it, is that we know several years ago people thought that everyone would have a 3D printer at home in the same way that they had desktop printers at home. But now what you're describing is more of these industrial uses. Do you think that this is the way that the technology will evolve? That'll be more of a business tool than a home consumer tool? I think that was always going to be the way it was. That was the bit that was overhyped, the fact that everyone would have a 3D printer at home. And instead of buying a physical good, you just download a piece of software and print it out. But it's a bit like saying, why would you have a lathe at home? Have you got a lathe at home, Ken? Actually, I do, but that's a separate separate discussion. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, but even is you know what would you do with it? They're hobbyists, or you know people playing around with old cars and making bits. They, they might want one of these, but you'd have to learn how to program it, and that was never going to happen. And so, what does this all say for the way that industrial production will take place in the future? Do you see this as a mainstream way in which businesses operate, or is this something that will always be on the periphery? No, it will be mainstream. You're seeing the first 3D printers appear on mass production lines in China. It will become just like robots. It's a form of automation. It will spread to every production line in every country. And the result is that manufacturing, as with automation, will become much more localized and more responsive to local markets. And it will also move out of those things that we're used to making things in, such as metals and plastic and move into biology and we will see 3D printers making tissue for testing and drug analysis and also printing organs for transplantation because there's been some big advances in that area as well. That's absolutely fascinating. Paul, thank you very much. Pleasure, Ken. You can read Paul's piece on 3D printing in the forthcoming issue of The Economist. And as for my lathe, it is a gift of a friend of mine who is a violin maker and it is set in such a way that it is a western lathe in one angle and a Japanese lathe on the other. And although it's a real lathe, for me, it's purely ornamental. If you have any thoughts on the future of 3D printing or on lathe technology, tell us. You can email us at radio at Next up, the idea of fake news has been on the global agenda at least since the U.S. election last year, but of course it dates back far, far longer than that. However, we might now be entering a new era because it's becoming a lot easier to create both video and audio of events that have never really taken place. Here to discuss the possible impacts of this is Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent. Hi, Ken. So, Hal, can we be sure that it's even me talking right now? 
We cannot, but that is a question for another day. The creation of media generally has come way down in cost, I guess since the invention of the computer. Text already is essentially free, and hence you have the Macedonian teenagers making fake news stories in their basements. What has not yet hit is the equivalent of that, but for images and video and audio. But we are right on the cusp of that. And so why is it that we are on the cusp of that? There is a type of machine learning called neural networks, and you can use those to create something called a generative adversarial network, which essentially tries to produce images which look really real, but are not. Now, we've had on the show before the idea of voice cloning, and we've looked at these generative adversarial networks, or GANs, but we're now able to apply these GANs to actually recreate video so it gives the image and movement of someone saying things or doing things that never really took place in real life. How close actually are we to that? I would say quite close. Video is actually very difficult, and one of the hardest things is making someone move in a way that looks right. Humans have a good perception for whether or not the movement is natural, and it's also just very complex the way that we move around. We don't appreciate it ourselves, but when you try and get an AI to do it, it's hard. What you're saying now is that our own judgment and our own vision is no longer the primal understanding of what happens in the world because on digital media we can actually create things that have never actually happened. I don't know about not trusting our own eyes, but I think not trusting our own tools. So when you look at audio and image capturing technology, it's really only been around for 150 years. But in those 150 years, we've come to trust it really, really strongly. If you show someone an image of someone doing something, that's really good evidence that they did it. And while it's pretty hard to doctor images, the fact that it's about to get easier is perhaps going to take us back to a time when there was no written down truth that everybody could agree on. There was no media that everybody could agree on. And I, th I think we're going to have to learn to trust each other a little bit more and not believe everything we see as easily. That's really spooky. Are we actually up to the task socially in the past the world was a chaotic place in terms of what is truth, but it was a very localized world. You always had to presume that you couldn't know things because you weren't there. But we've erased that in the 20th century, and now in the 21st, we have to go back to a time where we can't trust. Yeah, I'm calling this the pastoral internet, and I do agree that it is quite weird. In a world where everybody just lives in small societies and maybe you know only knows a small number of people and maybe never travels more than 30 miles from where they were born, then trusting your neighbor is a completely different proposition than the modern world where people move around a lot and, most importantly, where the internet moves information around a lot. How we are going to deal with... Online information is an unsolved question when it starts to become so easy to fake it. Now, I'm sure in the short term there is technologies available that can allow us to bring some sort of integrity into our digital media, such as digital watermarking technologies, but I'm also sure that that's a short-term solution and before the technology allows us to evade that. I think it puts us into an arms race with checks against this stuff. So what you could do if, say, you're the government is only put out official information in very, very high resolution, perhaps even in like immersive VR, and keep doing it at a resolution that is too hard to spoof. Do you believe that we're on the precipice of some sort of calamity because of the misuse of this technology, where somebody presumes to have North Korean authorities saying something just heinous that would prompt a response? I think the harm will be at much lower levels. I think it'll be teenagers being really cruel to each other by synthesizing, you know, a video of Mark doing something embarrassing and potentially even criminal, you know, something really awful. I, and I think that will go under the radar for a long time, especially 
you know, you already see that teenagers use the new upcoming app, whatever it is. There's one called Musical.ly with like four million teenagers in America on it where they just sing along to music videos and share them with their friends. My niece is on it and she has like a bunch of eight-year-old friends in Florida she's never met who they sing music videos to each other. That's the kind of space in which this technology will do real harm. I think the high-level government stuff, there's too much at stake for people to see, you know, some video of Trump doing something insane and just immediately launch the nukes. That's not going to happen. That's totally fascinating. Hal, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Finally, roaming icebergs are well known for causing havoc, a danger memorialized in the film Titanic. Is there anyone there? Yes, what do you see? Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. But aside from damaging ocean liners, stray icebergs can veer into fixed structures like oil platforms, wrecking the vital pipelines underneath. So how best to deal with them? On the line to tell us is our Canada correspondent, Madeline Drohan. Hello, Madeline. Hello. So first, are we seeing this natural threat of wild roaming icebergs getting worse? Well, certainly climate change is melting the glaciers in Greenland uh, a lot quicker than was happening before. And yes, so there are more icebergs being formed, something like up to 50,000 a year. That's a, that's a big number. It is a big number. And so one of the techniques you've described in your article is to rein in these stray icebergs by lassoing them. Talk us through how that works. Okay, well, there's a hell of a lot of work that goes into identifying a problem icebergs before the actual lassoing takes place. So there are companies that do satellite scans to figure out which are the big ones and are they heading the, their way. Then there's radar that's used by ships to get a little bit closer and try to decide what is a problem iceberg. Okay, so now once you've decided that this is an iceberg that is a problem, how do you lasso it? Ah, yes. <laughs> they have ships that are supply ships for the offshore oil fields, and they're sort of like the pickup trucks of the North Atlantic. And they're equipped with very heavy polyethylene rope. And what they do is, if there's an iceberg that they know is going to be a problem, they go out and they circle around it trailing this rope with them and then attach both ends to the boat and try to tug the iceberg off course. It sounds relatively simple, but you have to remember this is a part of the North Atlantic where waves can be 30 meters in height, so it can get quite hairy out there. And are there any other high-tech ways of dealing with the icebergs? If the icebergs are small enough that they don't have to necessarily be lassoed, you can use a water cannon, they call them iceberg cannons, that are mounted on the front of supply ships and blast them with enough water that you can divert them. But this is pretty dangerous too, because when you're blasting an iceberg, think of one the size of a house, it actually pushes the ship backwards. So the captain has to accelerate the ship at the same time. And of course, the minute that the water cannon stops, then the ship is going to surge ahead. So it's a pretty tricky maneuver. It sounds like a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> well, 
all of the researchers I talked to sounded like they had lots of fun. You know, this research institute in St. John's called Secor, they do things like putting all sorts of sensors on a rock face and then towing an iceberg into it to see what happens. Right now they're building a barge that they're going to put sensors on and run it into icebergs. And the whole point of this is to test how strong is ice and how weak is steel. You know, at a time when many people think that studying STEM subjects, science and technology and math is really boring and we need more children to do it, to tell young girls and boys that they can actually blast an iceberg with a water cannon sounds like a really good way to get more people involved in science. Yes, I think so. Listen, Madeline, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. That's the end of this week's Babbage. Don't forget to check out our new blog on the podcast at medium.economist.com. And if you like our journalism, consider subscribing to the newspaper. You can find all the information on our website. You can learn more at subscription.economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.